Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Buddha Pod. I'm Catherine. Hello, everybody. I'm Andrew, and today we'll be talking about how the Buddha taught different people. So last time we talked about the Buddha's life up until the awakening, and today we will actually be talking about life after his awakening, especially his teachings. So right when the Buddha attained awakening, he said that all sentient beings inherently possess the wisdom and nature of the Buddha. And this is from chapter 32 of the Avatamsaka Sutra. We'll try to have references and citations as we go along, and we'll put that in the um, descriptions as well. So when he says that all sentient beings inherently possess the wisdom and nature of the Buddha, he's talking about how every sentient being has the potential to become a Buddha. And this is actually one of the principal teachings of Buddhism and the central idea that everyone has the potential to become the Buddha, so everyone is equal in that way. This is why Buddhists cherish life, because every sentient being, whether it be a little bug or a dog, or even us as humans, we all have the potential to become a Buddha, but it's just a matter of how long. So we can think of it sort of in terms of how a school works. So one day, let's say for now, we're all students, but we all have the potential to become the teacher one day. And all of our teachers were at one point students themselves. And that's sort of one way how we can understand the relationship between the Buddha and his disciples. And also, as students, we have different things that we're good at. So some people might be better at math than others, but some people might be better at language arts than others. So it all depends on everyone's different conditions and how they learn. And even from their past lives, like what they were good at, and it kind of carries on into this life as well. Because mm -hmm. I think everybody, like you said, has different inclinations. Some people might like math more. Some people might like language arts more. Well, actually, we all respond to different teachings differently. And that's actually why the Buddha has so many different ways of teaching us. And with the stories that we're going to look at today, we'll see how the Buddha taught three different people, starting with a person named Nidhi, moving on to a mass murderer named Angulimala. And lastly, we'll end with how the Buddha taught his own son, Rahula. And they are all different people, and they all have different ways of learning and so the Buddha also responds to this with different teachings for each of them. Right. With the different teachings, the core meaning is all the same. Because the Buddha is so compassionate and so wise, he wants the beings that he is teaching to receive the teachings the best that they can so that they can be on the path and get to enlightenment as soon as possible. So for the first story, it is called The Liberation of Nidhi. To start, some context. So if you remember from last episode, in ancient Indian society is dominated by the caste system. And Nidhi is someone who belongs in the lowest caste. They're basically born as slaves. And his job was to clean up human feces from houses. Sounds like a wonderful job, doesn't it? Just the best. <laughs> and so... One day when the Buddha and Ananda were going out into the town and begging for alms, the Buddha sees him. And Nidhi also sees Buddha, but he does not want to make eye contact with him. He does not want to get close to him because he feels that he is unworthy to be near the Buddha or receive his teachings. But actually, the Buddha doesn't mind 
that Nidhi is of a lower class, and actually the Buddha is the one who approaches Nidhi first. So they, when they get close to him, Nidhi actually freaks out because he sees this divine being, and he just doesn't know what to do with himself. So it's kind of like he got starstruck, and he also was scared that he was going to dirty the Buddha. And so he ends up embarrassing himself by overturning a pile of feces. And then when Buddha got close to him, he just bowed down and said, Buddha, I'm so sorry. And the Buddha actually responded to this in a very compassionate way. He held him up. He actually asks him to join the Sangha. And Nidhi says, but I am the lowest caste. I am unworthy. I'm dirty. In one of the versions of the story, the Buddha actually says, you clean the filth from people's homes, but I clean the filth from people's hearts. Therefore, we are the same. And so upon hearing this, Nidhi is very touched. He accepts the Buddha's offer to join the Sangha. And that's how he became a part of the Sangha. So after he joins the Sangha, people are gossiping and people say things like, oh, how can I accept someone like Nidhi into my house? How am I supposed to give him offerings? He's going to make everything dirty. And so all of this especially, um, eventually spread throughout the kingdom and it got to the king who went to the Buddha to ask what was going on. And so the Buddha explained to the king that although people are born into different social classes, what makes a person noble isn't their ranking it by birth, but rather their conduct. And by this definition, Nidhi isn't of any lower class at all. He works diligently, he treats people with kindness and compassion. And so by that, he's actually a very noble person. And so he's a very worthy person of joining the Sangha. Yeah. And as you were just saying that cleaning up people's filth is actually one of the hardest jobs because when I was at the Buddhist college, the thing that I hated the most was cleaning up the bathroom and the showers. And so I actually applaud Nidhi for being able to do that because you really got to just set your prejudices aside and just clean for everyone because you hope that they will have a clean environment to live in. Oh, yeah. I actually was assigned the same job when I was on my retreat. Um, so we would work in groups. And so our group would try to make the restrooms as clean as possible. And we had the idea that there was no job that was too low for any of us because all of these jobs are very meaningful. We're giving people, like you said, a very clean place to do their business. And we would really strive to make it as clean as possible. It was a tough job. There was a lot of scrubbing and a lot of rather difficult stains to get out sometimes. But it was just a job like any other job around the monastery. And I learned a lot from it. Yeah, it had to be done. And I, for a while, I didn't want people to use the clean bathroom that I just cleaned up. But it really isn't about, you know, keeping it clean. It's about when the person goes in, they feel good because it's a clean restroom. So it's meant to be used. So I learned a lot from that as well. Yeah, I also think doing things like that and working in positions like that have also taught me to really appreciate these spaces and make it easier for the person who's cleaning. Because I know how it is on the other end. And I don't want to be the one who makes the mess for someone else to clean. And so I try to keep things as neat and tidy as possible. And that's something that I can do anywhere, really, where whenever I go out to a restaurant or the mall or to a school building, that's something that I can practice. Mm -hmm, for sure. And so Nidhi joins the Sangha and 
despite people's gossip, Buddha was able to convince the Sangha through his actions because in his teachings, he, he proclaims that everyone has the Buddha nature. So through his actions, early on, the Sangha was mostly Brahmins, which is like the higher caste. But throughout Buddha's life, the Sangha actually became more diversified and it truly became an equal place for everyone. So the next story that we wanted to share today is the story of Angulimala. And this story is from the middle-length discourses of the Buddha. In the Buddha's time, Angulimala was a serial killer, and his name literally translates into a necklace of fingers because he would kill people and then chop their fingers off and turn them into necklaces. <gasps> yeah, like, serious horror story going on right here. At this point, Angulimala has killed... 999 people, and he's trying to kill his 1,000th victim for this sort of sacrifice thing. And he decides that the 1,000th victim is going to be his own mom. And the Buddha finds out about this, and so the Buddha tries to go and stop him. So when Angulimala sees the Buddha, he thinks, oh, there's this guy. I'll kill him instead. And so... Angulimala is trying to kill the Buddha, but the Buddha is just walking away. And Angulimala can't seem to catch up to the Buddha. Angulimala is running and running, but he can't really keep up with the Buddha's pace. So as the Buddha is walking away and Angulimala is chasing after him, the Buddha tells Angulimala to stop. And Angulimala says, no, the Buddha is the one that needs to stop so that I can kill him, cut off his fingers, and so on. And then the Buddha says back to Angulimala, I've already stopped. It's you who needs to stop. But the Buddha is still walking and Angulimala still can't keep up. So he's confused and is wondering why the Buddha would say something like this. What does he mean by I've already stopped? And so he asked the Buddha this and the Buddha tells Angulimala, I've stopped Angulimala once and for all, having cast off violence towards all living beings. You, though, are unrestrained towards beings. And that's how I've stopped and you haven't. So upon hearing these lines, Angulimala realizes that he has been very violent and hurtful towards a lot of sentient beings and throws his weapons away and becomes a monk. So that was a really quick turnaround for someone who had been a serial killer for many, many years. So the thing is, is that we each have different things that we respond to. For, so for example, upon hearing this line, I don't know how many of us are going to suddenly throw our weapons away and become monastics. But again, it's because this was told to Angulimala and not us specifically. So it we can understand the story, but these lines don't resonate with us. And we don't have the same feeling that Angulimala was because we're not in that same position. But for him, that's what transformed him. And actually, after Angulimala becomes a monk, the king of the country that they're in is trying to find and arrest Angulimala. So the king comes with all of his troops, and he goes to tell the Buddha that, yeah, I'm here to find this serial killer. And the Buddha says to him, well, what if I told you that this serial killer is actually a monk now? And the king says, well, if he's a monk now, I would treat him the same as any other monk, make offerings to him, and so on and so forth. And so the Buddha says, well, he is a monk now. He's sitting right over there. And the king looks and says, are you really Angulimala? And he says, yes, I'm so sorry for what I've done, so on and so forth. And then the king is really surprised that someone who had been so violent 
could become a monk. And I think this is part of what we mean in Buddhism by all sentient beings have this potential to become a Buddha. All sentient beings have a potential to change. And a lot of times people are in certain situations because of their past conditions and whatnot. But all of this is impermanent and all of these things can change if other conditions appear. So for example, by meeting the Buddha, Angulimala stopped killing and eventually attained awakening and became an arhat. But even though he found this new path of becoming a monk and repenting for his past wrongdoings, it still doesn't excuse him for what he did. So later on, he will have to live out his karmic retributions and he will have to suffer those consequences. But a change is a change and it is important to the king and like the whole sangha and Buddha that he did not hold on to the past and knowing that it's wrong. But from now on, he is able to repent and start anew. And actually, Angulimala, when even after he became awakened and after he became an arhat, when he would go on his alms rounds, he would get um, heckled by the villagers and people would throw stones at him and curse him out and treat him just terribly because in their minds, he was still a serial killer. He was still the person who murdered their um, children or their parents and so on. And so all of those feelings were still very raw. And of course, that's very understandable for what he had done. And he, knowing what he had done, didn't hold the villagers in any contempt for their treatment of him. As you were talking about his story, as a bystander, I feel that sometimes when I read about something, like, for example, a serial killer or like a serial rapist, I would feel like extremely angry and feel disgusted towards this person. Buddha is able to transcend because he is awakened and be compassionate towards him, even though he has done all of these bad things and still give him the teachings that he needed to, because his ultimate goal is to make him realize and help him reach awakening. And I think it's partly because when we see people doing terrible things, we attribute that to sort of some sort of core part of their identity that we believe doesn't change. Whereas when the Buddha sees these situations, he sees them in their entirety and realizes that this is a person who is doing this perhaps because they just don't know any better. And so when the Buddha intervenes, he's able to give a very good solution to the issue and stop that person from continuing to do harm and actually transform that person into someone who works for the benefit of many, many others. But unfortunately, we're not like that. And this is something that I think is also very important. The Buddha is able to do all of this because he has both compassion and wisdom. And so when we're trying to help people out, I think a lot of times we have the compassion and we have the intention to want to do something to help others. But we don't necessarily know the right thing to do at the right time. I think in my case, like my patterns of giving have definitely evolved as I've grown up. So I think when I was younger, I would think that because there are a lot of beggars on the streets of China and I grew up there. So I gave money to every single one that I met. But now that I look back, giving money was probably not the best way because I mean, not that I'm 
attached to like what they're using it with, but what they're using it for is probably not good for them ultimately. As I grow up though, my sister was actually a really good example for me because one time she saw someone on the streets and she got them necessities like toilet paper and different stuff like that. So I think that is much more fitting to give them these necessities than money because they can actually use that and not be tempted by the money. And actually, now that you bring up giving and sort of giving with wisdom, I think there are a few ways that people might come across this situation. So one person might come across a situation where someone asks them for something and they don't have anything to give, but they want to give something. And so for the rest of the day, they're sort of tormented by this thought like, I should have given something, just didn't have anything at the moment to give, I didn't know what to do. And I think that's also very harmful. And then, of course, there are the people who have something that could be given and they have no sort of desire to give what they have, perhaps out of stinginess or because they don't want to have any interaction with people that they perceive are lower than them. And it reminds me of a time, actually, when it was in the summer and I was still in high school. I had just gone to the temple earlier that day because there was a chanting service. And so after every chanting service, there's lunch. And I had packed myself a sandwich because I was going to go to the library that afternoon and check a book out. And on my way there, I came across someone who asked me if I had any food. And so immediately, I remembered that I had packed a sandwich that morning to eat in the afternoon. And because I had it, and because the condition came up that someone had asked me for a sandwich, I just naturally took it out of my bag and handed it to him. And so a lot of times when we're trying to help others, we have that intention, but we also have to have the resources available to give to them and their appropriate resources. If I had a bowling ball, that wouldn't have helped the person at all. But instead, I had a sandwich, which was food, which was nutritious, and I felt perfectly happy being able to give that to the person. Yeah, for sure. I mean, did you feel hungry, though, afterwards? Because you didn't have that sandwich anymore. <laughs> I, I actually didn't. I mean, I thought I was, when I was giving it to him, I was thinking like, oh, man, am I gonna regret this later? But actually, it was fine. I mean, I got home and I had dinner and one skipped meal was not the most terrible thing in the world. So it worked out. Yay. But there are definitely times when I can't help or like I don't help very well. So my common example of this is whenever I try to help my mom in the kitchen. And it usually starts with me seeing her cooking and I'll be like, oh, can I help with something? And she'll be like, yeah, here, do this. Cut these carrots for me or something. I'll start cutting the carrots. And then after I'm done, I'll be like, hey, mom, I'm done. And she looked at them and she's like, oh, you weren't supposed to cut them like that. I think, <laughs> oh, crap, that was the last carrot. What are we going to do now? Then she just tells me to get out because I didn't help her at all in that situation. And so I need to get better with my nice skills. I need to get better with my cooking skills before I can offer my help. Again. Yeah, that happens to me a lot too. Like I didn't cut this thin enough or something and I just get chased out. So <laughs> similar deal, similar deal. <laughs> yeah. So I think sort of the takeaway from this is that oftentimes we'll have the desire to help others, but we also need to know how to help others. And so when we're practicing Buddhism, we're increasing our capacity and how much we are able to help others. And as we increase that capacity, 
we are able to resolve issues more effectively. And I think that has been one of the greatest benefits from practicing Buddhism. Yeah, for sure. I completely agree. I have a question for you, though. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's harder to cultivate compassion or wisdom? Or do you think they go hand in hand? In my experience, I feel like they go hand in hand. It's sort of the trend that I've started with compassion, and then I develop some wisdom. And then with that, I look back at my compassion and I realize how uncompassionate my compassion was. And I know that sounds sort of abstract, but for example, I'll be thinking that, you know, I really want to help this person and I can't help them because I don't have enough compassion. And so once I start learning more, developing my compassion, developing my abilities, I look back and now I'm able to help that person. But then I also realized that my original intention for helping that person was way off. I wasn't doing it so that they would feel better. I was doing it so that I would somehow benefit from the situation, whether they would like me more or people would praise me for helping them and so on. And so I would sort of reflect back on how imperfect my compassion had been. And so the wisdom, I think, feeds back into that compassion. And then once I have a more more refined sense of compassion, I also am more motivated to keep practicing, keep studying, developing more wisdom, and then help more people now with sort of a better grasp about what compassion is about. I relate to that story a lot. I think because back at the Buddhist college, a phrase that I heard a lot is that compassion and wisdom are two wings of a bird. So you can't have one without the other. And looking back on my acts of compassion or maybe my feelings of compassion, they might have just been empathy. Definitely when I was younger, like I would feel sorry for different people. But like in the Buddhist sense, compassion is not just pity or like looking down on someone, but actually wanting to deliver them into the way instead of just wanting to help with their current situation. Having true compassion, I think it's seeing the whole picture instead of just, you know, a moment. So I've definitely like grown a lot too from my Buddhist practice and elevated my sense of compassion. And with wisdom, that's when I can really help the other person. And I think also something that I've come across recently is that there are always sort of reminders of how much there are to go. And I feel like the more time I spend learning and practicing Buddhism, the more I realize that there's a lot more out there that I haven't even considered yet. And I think the most, one of the most recent examples with compassion is I had actually gone for a while thinking that, you know, I think my, I'm doing pretty good in compassion right now. And as soon as I gave myself that pat on the back, I realized that I was very far from that because I was actually getting tired of being compassionate. And that compassion, I guess you could call it sort of like a compassion burnout or compassion fatigue, where I realized that, you know, this wasn't how compassion is supposed to be and that it shouldn't have been draining me. It shouldn't have been an exhausting thing. And since realizing that, I've been sort of reflecting back and forth thinking, okay, so what's wrong with this foundation? What's wrong with this foundation of compassion and how should I correct it so that I can be compassionate and truly be compassionate for others and not just 
put on the show of compassion and then burn myself out while trying to do that. The thing about the Bodhisattva path is that, you know, it is for others. And so once you take the self out, because like the reason, I feel like the reason why I get burned out sometimes is because I want something to gain. But, you know, once you take the I out of the equation, I feel like it becomes easier and your range becomes bigger. Yeah, I feel like like your circle of compassion expands, right? Is that where you're trying to get mm-hmm. at? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also sometimes I think about like when we're practicing the Bodhisattva way and when we're learning from the Buddha, their compassion is so big. It covers so it covers all sentient beings, right? The Buddha is compassionate towards all sentient beings. And sometimes I think to myself, so how many beings am I compassionate towards? And I think I can actually typically count them all out. Like, okay, so I can be compassionate towards my parents, my friends, my other extended family, and so on. And it's like, the farther and farther away I get, it's harder to be compassionate until I start bringing up people that I've had issues with. And then it becomes really hard to be compassionate. And then I see very clearly that this is the limit where I'm at right now. And how am I supposed to help all sentient beings if I can't help a dozen beings? <laughs> yeah, it's because we're still human and we're still all on this path. So it is a process. And the fact that you realize your circle of compassion is not as big as you want it to be is already a big step. And so when you realize that your compassion could be bigger, it could include more people, more beings, then you are on the right path to great compassion. So for the third story, it's about Buddha's son, Rahula. And even though he's the son of Buddha, he still doesn't get special treatment. The Buddha treats everyone the same. So Rahula, when he joined the Sangha, he was actually rude and he often lied to the people in the Sangha. Upon hearing the rumors about Rahula, he told Rahula to go repent for like 90 days. And so he did that. And then Buddha, the Buddha came to see him and he orders Rahula to get a bucket of water to wash his feet. So Rahula did, as he said, he brought the bucket over and he started washing the Buddha's feet. And after he was done, the Buddha asks, can this water be used for drinking or food? And Rahula says, no, because it's dirty and it's not worthy to be used for drinking or for food. And the Buddha said, you are like that water. Because of the lies that you tell constantly, you become something that's unworthy. And so Rahula, at this point, he starts to really repent and be shameful. And then Buddha proceeds to tell Rahula to pour the water out. So he pours the water out and he asks him, can this bowl be used for cooking or for food? And Rahula says no. And the Buddha again says, you are like this bowl because of your lies and you couldn't control your thoughts. You are like this bowl that has been devalued. And so after hearing that Rahula keeps repenting because he's like, oh gosh, like what have I done? And the third thing that Buddha does is he kicks the bowl to its side and he asks Rahula, this bowl that you use to wash my feet, will you treat it with care? Will you value it like it's something that you treasure very much? And 
where Hula says no because you use it to wash your feet. It's cheap, and even if I were to pay attention to it, I probably wouldn't take care of it. And Buddha again says, you are like this bull. Because of your bad conduct, people don't trust you anymore. The people who are above you, who are wiser than you, they won't want to help you. And after you die, you will be in the lower three realms, which is the hungry ghosts, the demons, and the animals. And so after that, Rahula just completely changes and he becomes this person with really good conduct in the Sangha. There's more to the story, and which we will link in the description, but the gist of the story is that the Buddha uses metaphors to teach Rahula so that he will change his ways. So when I first learned this story, it was actually during my first retreat back when I was also um, a novice monk, just like Rahula was, and I think that's why they used the story. But I was always thinking, if I was in that situation, okay, so you wash your feet in the bowl and you pour the water out, so you stop lying, or you stop doing what has been hurting others, people are still going to look at you differently. The results of what you've done can't be taken back. You can't take all of your words back and say, pretend I never said any of that, because you already have. You've already insulted people, you've lied to people, and all of that stays. And so since learning that story, I've tried to be a lot more careful with the language that I choose and sort of be as clear as possible and also be sure to not un- not hurt others int- intentionally or unintentionally and just sort of guarding what I say. And I think in it's after that I started learning Buddhism is that I saw the power of words because it really puts an emphasis on there's this thing called verbal karma and it's as serious as stuff that you do wrong which at first was really surprised me because there's this idea that words don't really matter You know, it's your actions that matter. But in Buddhism, they say that your words matter as much as your actions. So in the Noble Eightfold Paths, one of them is right speech. But it's how you should guide your life. Mm -hmm. And I think bringing, going back a bit to what you were talking about with verbal karma, I think your physical karma and your verbal karma and even your mental karma are very influential. And so there's the line that goes like, Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. In the Buddha sense, sticks and stones are physical things, and you can hurt people with them. But you can also hurt people with your words, too. And thats I don't think there's any denying that we have all experienced pain through verbal conduct before. Whether someone is scolding us, or we've been lied to, and we feel very hurt because someone lied to us, or people have insulted us, and so on. So I think it's very important to just um, make that clear that we do have to be careful with our physical actions and how we hurt people physically, but also how we hurt people through our words. And I just wanted to reiterate that. This story is a little bit different from the other stories in that Buddha is trying to discipline Rahula, but he doesn't use the conventional methods of disciplining. Like his words are impactful, but they're not mean by any means and they actually are very effective against Rahula because Rahula is a novice monk so he's young and impressionable and he uses this metaphor to really knock the lesson into him rather than scolding him. And so I think through all the three of these stories we can kind of get a sense of how the Buddha teaches different people 
And there are many, many other stories out there, but these are just a few of them that we've chosen for this episode. Yeah, I feel that these stories are good examples of the Buddha sees the person so he knows what ways are the most effective for them. That's why if you walk into a Buddhist library, there's just a whole wall of sutras for you to go through. So you will find something. You don't have to read everything, but you will find something that's right for you. Definitely. And I think going back to what we were talking about in episode one with starting in Buddhism, sometimes you have so many books that you don't know which one to start with. And I think in those cases, just start with what you have and what resources are most accessible for you. And the others will come as you practice Buddhism. Yeah, for sure. So that concludes the third episode of Buddha Pod. I want to take this chance to thank everyone who is supporting us. Well, that concludes our third episode of Buddha Pod. I just want to take this chance to thank everyone who's supporting us and Leanne, who has volunteered to transcribe our podcast for us. So we actually have another volunteer who has been helping us turn our podcast into YouTube videos. And that is Kyla. Thank you for your hard work in doing that. And so also with the help of our new volunteers on the team, we are now on the website, buddhapod.org. We're on YouTube. We're on SoundCloud. We're on Facebook. And soon we will also be on iTunes. Tune in on your iPhones because I know all y'all have one. And as always, if you have any topics that you would want us to cover or if you're interested in something please send us an email or a facebook message and we'll see if we can put it on the list thank you for listening thank you and we always appreciate comments so leave a comment on facebook or our website we really appreciate it and please give us some feedback on how we can improve again i'm Catherine, and i'm andrew bye see y'all next week